Well, as we close out this series, I want you to know that um, if you missed any of the um, topics, they are available online if you're taking a road trip. If you are going to have some time at the gym this week, you can always go uh, into the app or on the website. The app has like just an audio version of the sermons. We're also on like the podcast, like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can find them and you can catch up. Each one of them it really is going to get you ready to have an important spiritual conversation. So go back and maybe binge the series again if you want to. Each one of the sermons was also designed to kind of have more information than you can absorb in one sitting so that you can come back to it again. If someone's like asking you that question, you can come back to it again and kind of refresh your, your mind on it. Today's going to be the same. We're talking today about um, the, the concept of this is the complaint. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. For a lot of people, this is the deal breaker. This is the conversation killer. It doesn't matter what you say to them. It doesn't matter how convincing you are. You can share the most beautiful story of how God has changed your life. Or you can go through history and talk about all the wonderful things that God has done. Or tell them about the Old Testament and his miracles. And all that they are thinking about is this. I can't believe in a God who will send people to hell. If you don't know what to say when that's what's on the person's heart, the conversation is over. Do you know what to say? Do you know how to keep the conversation going? And remember, I was talking to Pastor Stephen about this as he was getting his sermon ready last week. I said, remember, you're not telling Christians what to think about suffering. You're telling them what to tell other people. So I'm getting you ready not to know what we believe about hell, but to talk to other people about this hard concept. My heart has been heavy all week long as I've been preparing this sermon. In fact, I came home on Friday and Lauren said, you look down. And I said, well, I spent all week thinking about hell and how to talk to people about it. I'm really trying to capture and comprehend uh, God's heart of anguish that's expressed in hell. And I think that's kind of my biggest goal. My biggest goal for you is to capture and comprehend God's heart of anguish when it comes to the concept of hell so that you can convey that in the conversation. That is ultimately, I think, the only thing that's going to keep the conversation going. If you can capture and comprehend and convey God's heart of anguish about the topic of hell. That's what we're going for. Now, a lot of people have different views on hell. Some people don't believe it even exists. Some people do. Uh, great thinkers throughout history have talked about it. So here's a quote from Isaac Asimov. Uh, I think this is pretty insightful. He said this, I don't believe in an afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven even more. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. Wow, that's a way to process the afterlife. And then what about C.S. Lewis, brilliant guy? He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You've got two great, brilliant people thinking about this concept, and one's like, I don't believe any of it. Uh, and the other one is like, yeah, it's a pretty gentle, leisurely stroll to get there, and it's a very real place. Well, let's pray and then we'll learn how to talk to people, regardless of what they believe, about this idea of hell. Father, as we talk about this heavy, terrifying, 
concept, this, this experience of hell, I pray that you would help us to fathom the depths of your heart. Help us to understand, O oh Lord, who we are, who you are, and the great peril of those around us. Indeed, even our own peril at the thought of hell being real and possible. I pray that you would go beyond helping us to comprehend it and give us opportunities this week to talk to people about this great objection to faith. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. As usual, at the end of this sermon, we're going to bring the mic out to you. And uh, so if you have any questions about this, this sermon, then get ready because we're going to let you ask questions. All right, the first thing that you can say during a conversation when someone says, well, I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, jot this down, ask a question. Say, what do you think happens right after you die? What do you think happens right after you die? Remember, I've told you that the secret of having a conversation that's great is asking great questions. Now, you might want to jump right into Bible verses when they're like, I can't believe in a good God who will send people to hell. You might want to start teaching them, but it would be a mistake. I would recommend you ask a question so that you get a feel for where they're coming from. What do you think happens right after you die? The four big words we've learned about worldview are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Clearly, we're talking about destiny today. Everyone has to figure out what they believe about origin, where everything came from, and meaning, why we're here, and morality, what's right and wrong, and then destiny, where is it all going? Ask them what they believe about it, and then just be a good listener. Um, some people will tell you, oh, I know I'm going to hell. They're riddled with shame and guilt, and they think there's no hope for them. Other people will tell you that heaven and hell are just fairy tale concepts. Most people will believe that most people are going to heaven. Most people will believe in a heaven and a hell, but they'll just think that most of us are heading to heaven. I read some stats from a Barna poll back in 2003 that were pretty interesting. Um, they asked about Americans, uh, they asked Americans to describe their view about life after death. And um, here's what the poll turned up. It said, most Americans do not expect to experience hell firsthand. Get this, just one half of one percent expect to go to hell upon their death. One half of one percent expect to go to hell upon their death. Nearly two-thirds of Americans, like 64 percent, believe they'll go to heaven. About 5% claim they'll come back and be reincarnated. About 5% say they'll just simply stop existing. They'll just be nothing. 24% said they have no idea. 24% of people during this survey, when asked about what do you think happens when you cross over into the next life, 24% of people did this. These are the people around us. Most Americans believe in life after death and the existence of the soul. They're just not clear of their ultimate destination. Here's another interesting stat. Of those people who said they believed they're going to heaven, so the 64% who said they're going to heaven, they were asked why. 43% of those people said because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Others said they would get to heaven because they try to obey the Ten Commandments, 15%. Or they're basically a good person, 15%. Or 6% believe that their entrance to heaven would be because God loves all people and would never let them perish. 
There's a lot of confusion over where we're going after we die and how we're going to get there. That was a bit of an older study, but in 2021, the American Worldview Inventory did a study and said currently just 2% of Americans believe they will experience hell after they die on earth. Over the past 40 years, polls have shown that only 1% to 2% of people think they're going to hell. That's a 40-year span, a very consistent number. What does that tell us? That tells us that the vast majority, 99 plus percent of the people you will talk to will not think they're going to hell. That's going to be their starting point. So you have to dig in and find out why they think they're not going to hell. But first, ask them the question, what do you think happens right after you die? What do you think happens right after you die? And if they're up for a Bible verse, maybe you feel like you can say, well, you know, here's what the Bible says. Hebrews 9.27, we'll put it up on the screen. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There could be a lot of different perspectives of what happens one minute after you die, uh, but we believe what the Bible teaches, that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So what do you think happens right after you die? I think that we really get one chance and right after this life we're going to be judged. That's how the conversation can keep going. And then you could personalize it. Jot this down. You can say, do you think you're going to heaven? Do you think you're going to heaven? The answer is they probably do, but you have to dig in and figure out why they believe that. Hey, I, don't, I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. Well, what do you think happens right after you die? Do you think you're going to heaven? You'll start to find some contradictions. Because if a person says that, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, and then you keep them talking, they will likely think that they're going to heaven. Okay, so you see the contradiction there? They're threatening to not believe in God, but they think they're going to heaven. Those contradictions are things you're going to have to unwind as they keep talking. Um, when it comes to heaven and hell, Luke 16, you can turn there if you want to, Luke 16 is a good place to go when it comes to what Jesus had to say about heaven and hell. It's the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus, and we're not sure exactly what this is. It could be a parable or it could be a real story. Jesus has access to the living and the dead. He could be relaying something that really happened. Uh, or he can be capturing a real dynamic in, the, in this story. But it says in Luke 16, verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered in sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Everyone say, Ew. All right, now in the ancient world, people would have assumed the rich man who's eating everything he wants, who's clothed in purple, who has all the money, he's that way because God loves him. God loves him. He's doing a good job in life, so God has blessed him. Lazarus, the poor man who's, who's like just lying on the rich man's doorstep, who needs scraps, dogs are licking his sores, it's because he must have done something to make God mad. He's not a good person. Now, Jesus is dismantling all of that. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, that's one word for hell, uh, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So understand here, Jesus is affirming the idea of hell. Hades was uh, an ancient god, but it was also the, uh, a, a, a name, a title for the netherworld, the underworld, the, the hellish region. And um, Hades, being in torment, is where this rich man went. 
It's as he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Anguish in this flame. Like the feeling of just, I can't even get a drop of cold water. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. So he wants Lazarus to go back and warn his family not to go to hell. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So they've got the Old Testament. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We can take away a lot of principles about heaven and hell from this story. There will be a reversal of fortunes. So a lot of people who are the least here will be the greatest there. Those who seem so rich and famous here and think it's maybe because God is blessing them will end up in hell. There's a reversal of fortunes. There's also a permanence. It's done. It's over. There's no reversing it. Uh, There's also an opportunity for salvation here. So what happens there grows out of what happens here. There's an opportunity for salvation. We also see the centrality of the Word of God. Let them listen to Moses and the Law and the Prophets, right? The Word of God is central to getting people out of hell. And, um, and also we see the folly of rejecting Jesus. He says, even if someone should rise from the grave, they won't believe him. That's folly. That's great folly because Jesus did rise from the grave and people still today don't listen to it. Do you think you're going to heaven? Whatever they say, I don't, I don't know if there is a heaven and a hell. I don't think it's, you know, you might, you might tell this story. You know, Jesus told a story about a guy who had it all here, and he left, and he's in the fire. Man, it's permanent, and there's no going. You can't cross over, and there's no coming back. And man, he rose from the grave, right? Do you think you're going to heaven? Some people don't even think there is an afterlife. Uh, Bertrand Russell, we've got a quote from him we'll put up on the screen. He said this, All the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. He went on to say, If this is true, brothers, and it is true, what's the point? See, if you don't have a belief in an afterlife or a judgment or an opportunity to go to heaven, what's the point? And a lot of people functionally live with that philosophy. You want to keep the conversation going? Ask this, what do you think happens right after you die? What do they believe? Ask, do you think you're going to heaven? If you get a chance, maybe share this story. And then, if the conversation is still going well, and they haven't, like, deleted you (laughs) from Facebook... Um, you can maybe ask this question. Number two, why does the idea of hell bother you? Why does the idea of hell bother you? Try and drill down a little on what it is. And I, I wonder if you have ever asked this question, because for a lot of people in the church, hell is bothersome. In fact, it should bother and haunt you that there is uh, hell. Why does the idea of hell bother you? Is it because it's forever? 
There's no second chance. It seems too severe. It's cruel and torturous. Appears worse than a holocaust. Why, why is it that you have a problem with hell? Uh, Bertrand Russell also said this. He said, go ahead and put that slide up there. There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. So why? Why does the idea of hell bother you? Ask them that question. It will come down to two fundamental objections. They may say it in a different way, but there's only two major reasons why people have a problem with hell. Uh, They think it's unfair or they think it's unloving. They think it's unfair or they think it's unloving. Let's take the first one. Jot this down. Well, it's unfair. Okay, what if it's the result of rejecting God's law? So if they're like, well, it's just unfair, like it's wrong. Okay, what if it's the result of people rejecting God's law? What if, and this is a profound thought for you to think about, what if hell is the natural outcome of a fair trial? Meaning it is the just ending of a life lived in violation of God's law. What if there will be, and you can take 5,000 years to thumb through the records of God's judgment. What if this is a hard thing to face? It's because of a fair trial that this person is justly condemned to hell forever. God's not doing anything unfair, removing, no more second chances for you. He's not taking away justice. What if this is perfect justice? And what if before you get there, you can actually conclude the same thing? It's going to be a fair trial that justly condemns these people to hell. That's a question that will get you a good conversation. What if hell is the result of rejecting God's law? It might get confusing here because nobody likes the thought of wicked people getting away with anything. So do you think people should just get away with stuff? They won't like that. Well, well no, there has to be, people have to be judged, right? Who? Well, and now they get selective. That's the problem. We're very, very selective in which evil we want God to get rid of. Very selective. Hitler, get him out. Rapists, terrorists, I'm fine with that. We want judgment. We want justice. We demand it. But the closer it comes to us and our loved ones and our culture and our, the closer it comes to us, we're like, whoa, perfect, eternal justice? That's not what I'm talking about. So there will be some contradictions in what they want. They will want payback. They will want justice. They will demand it of a holy God. But hell? Doesn't that seem too far? There's a couple passages you can go to to unpack the idea of what hell is. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. We'll put it up on the screen. This is the end of days. This is like the end of the end. This is like there's no more original earth or the whole universe. It's kind of all rolled up. So then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. 
death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That is a perfect judgment. That is everyone with a complete and comprehensive record of their entire life being judged justly by the moral law of God. It is a perfect trial, comprehensive and complete, that then leads to then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What this does is it removes the concept of some people deserve to, heaven, deserve to go to heaven and some people deserve to go to hell. Um, friends, here's the hard reality to face. Um, hell is your fault. Have you faced that reality in your life? Have you personally owned that hell is your fault? That's actually a really powerful thing to say in a conversation. I, I can't believe it. God who sends people to hell. Hell is my fault. I think I deserve to go there. I think it's built for a person like me. And I think on Judgment Day, when my record of debt is, is opened up, I think I'm going to be condemned. But guess what? There's another book. The book, the Lamb's Book of Life, the book of the people Jesus has saved, and my name's in that book too. I'm going to be condemned, but Jesus rescued me from that. Do you see how the news gets a whole lot worse than what they originally think? Well, why are some people going to be thrown in hell? I don't think you're getting it. We all deserve to be there. That's how bad things are. And here's the astonishing thing. It's a result of a fair trial that proves that to be true. Do you see how we're helping people to face the hard reality of what it means to be human and what it means to be related to God uh, in, a, in a state of defiance toward his law? Romans 3.23 makes it clear. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So God's justice demands a hell, a final resolution of all depravity, punishment out of God's presence, away from his people, but you won't find any fault in God's justice. In this world, our understanding of sin is limited. We can't fathom the depths of sin, our own or other people's. In the next life, it will be laid bare. In this life, our experience of sin is limited. We only know partially what, how we've sinned and how other people have sinned. In the next life, it will be comprehensive. Here's our opportunity to see that when the fullness of God's justice and judgment comes, it will be perfect and comprehensive and condemning. We have to fear that now. Well, God's going to do something unfair. Somebody lives their whole life doing the best they can, and God's just going to throw them in hell. You think that he's going to do anything unfair? I think it's going to be the result of a perfect trial that leads people to hell. Okay, what about the love thing? Jot this down. What if, it's, what if hell is the result of refusing God's love? There's definitely a love problem when it comes to the idea of hell. How can people end up in eternal conscious torment for all time? And that is what hell is, eternal conscious torment. Isn't that an unloving thing for God to do? I thought God is love. Well, the nature of love involves choice and response. Um, it's easy to see on earth what would happen if you went to someone and forced them to love you. Uh, you're coming home with me now and you're mine. Uh, physically, I'm going to have my way with you. Um, I'm forcing my love on you. Okay, that's called rape. Uh, love forced on a person is not love. It's coercive. So the idea of love has to involve the opportunity of reciprocation. 
God has made it clear that we have the opportunity to respond to him in a loving manner, or like Adam and Eve, we can run and hide. Uh, we can hate his guts. We can deny that he even exists. Humans are free to refuse God's love. So what does hell teach us about love? Well, love demands a hell, because if God has allowed for us to refuse his love, and he's not going to force us to love him, then there will inevitably be some who will be removed from the love of God, which is a huge problem, because God is the eternal source of everything that is good and pleasurable. So relationally, and this is really the biggest thing you can grasp about what's wrong with hell. It's not the physical side of it. It's not the fire and we'll get to that and the dark. That's not the biggest thing that's horrifying about hell. It's that you and I are creatures who are capable of leaving this life and then arriving in a state where we will live forever in a broken, defiant relationship with the God who made us. You are capable, as a human, of saying, I will not love God, and falling into that state of darkness and defiance for eternity. The existence of demons show us that thousands of years of defiance can pass, and demons don't change their mind. That can be you 5,000 years from now. So when it comes to love, God is love. There will be no lack of love. There will be perfect love in the nature of God. If you're afraid God's going to do unloving things to people in the next life, you don't understand God. The lack of love is found in the guilty person. We refuse his love. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus expressed his heart toward Jerusalem, the city that would kill him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Luke 19, 41, he said this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it. That's the anguish of God. In Ezekiel 18, 23, here's what it says. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Turn. There's not going to be this experience on Judgment Day where God's like, I hate you. You're okay. I'm good with you. I hate you. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love abounds. So you can give people the assurance. Why does the idea of hell bother you? It's just not fair. What if it's actually the just ending of people breaking and violating God's law? Well, it's just not loving. I mean, how could God do that? It's, it's cruelty. Yeah, but what is the natural outcome of people entering a permanent state of refusing God's love? Hell is the answer to both of those things. Hell is for people who have refused God's love. Hell is for people who have rejected God's law. And it's permanent in the next life. Why does the idea of hell bother you? You can talk about that with people. What do you think happens right after you die? Do you think you're going to heaven? Why does the idea of hell bother you? What if it's the result of rejecting God's law and refusing God's love? And then the third thing you can say is this. Isn't it good that God is warning us now? Isn't it good that God is warning us now? 
You're trying to draw attention to the reality that God is expressing a warning to us right now. I want to also make sure that throughout the conversation, you never, ever, ever turn down the heat or change our view of hell. So sometimes Christians try and make it more palatable, you know. They'll say things like, well, God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there. That's actually not true. God sends people to hell. God built hell. So you try and soften it up a little bit. Well, you know, maybe there's purgatory. Maybe there'll be a second chance. No. Well, maybe God just destroys people. No, no, don't. Please, please, please don't include a false teaching to try and make people feel better about hell. Hell is eternal conscious torment. God is warning us. In Matthew 10, 28, here's what Jesus said. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, do you see why it's wrong to say, well, God doesn't send people to hell? No, we're to fear him because he can send us to hell. He does send us to hell. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, this doesn't mean you literally amputate a hand. It means take all drastic action necessary to avoid going to hell, like ex as extreme as it needs to be to avoid going to hell. This is a warning. This is a warning. This is a warning. We have to face the reality of the warning. When it comes to the idea of hell, it's understandable that there's some confusion about what hell is going to be like. Um, and when God warns us, he uses several words or descriptions or phrases to show us just how terrible hell is going to be. It creates some confusion, though, because the physical descriptions of hell can be contradictory. So, for example, it's fire, but it's also darkness. Uh, it is described as like a lake, but also a bottomless pit. Um, or outer darkness, like wandering through space. Um, so, some of the words used to describe hell include like a pit or uh, even one word, Gehenna, is, is, a, is literally a physical place in Jesus' day. It's the valley right, side of, right outside of Jerusalem. And it was like the town dump. They sacrificed animals at the temple every day. That's also where a lot of food came from. The carcasses were thrown in this valley. So imagine a valley like a dump that's on fire with rotting animal corpses and the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. In addition, that's the place where in the Old Testament, Israelites sacrificed their children to a false god. So it's cursed of God, flaming, it smells terrible. When he says the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, imagine that forever. Now the fact that there is some symbolism in these descriptions shouldn't make you feel better about hell. Like, oh, so there might not be literal physical fire. Uh, it shouldn't make you feel better at all that these are symbolic ways to describe the eternal place. The eternal place is going to be eternal conscious torment. The words and descriptions used are meant to make us imagine the worst possible horrific living situation ever for all time. Isn't it good that God is warning us? He's described it in horrific terms. Jot this down, because he desires to rescue people from judgment. Isn't it good that God desires to rescue people from judgment? That's what heaven is, after all. It's a rescue from sin, death, and darkness. Heaven is a, a rescue from sin, death, and darkness. I like 
what a guy named A.J. Gossip said. He said this, The core and essence of the gospel is its tremendous and glorious revelation of how deadly is God's hatred of sin so that he cannot stand having it in the same universe as himself. That's good news, friends. Heaven with sin is not heaven. Heaven with sin is not heaven. God has to get rid of all of it. And for people who are determined to exit this life and enter the next life full of their sin, they can't go to heaven. He desires to rescue people from judgment. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, And we are waiting for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God. So he desires to rescue people from judgment. Isn't that good news? Jot this down. He sent Jesus to display his great love and mercy. To display his great love and mercy. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. I just want to camp on this for a moment because as you're having a conversation with someone, it's going to come up that they probably think they're going to heaven. So you have to now clarify why they think they're going to heaven. And you have to ask them, well, how... God said, why should I let you in? Why, why would you go to heaven? They'll have a, a host of different answers. Well, I, you know, I was religious. I went to CCD, you know, did my religious ad, or I'm a good person, or I give to charity. Usually it's, I do. I did this. I did this. I did this. Um, that's problematic because the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In Matthew 25, 34, it describes what Jesus will do when he comes back. And Jesus is coming back to rule. Heaven is his kingdom. You know that, right? It's not your personal imaginary fantasy land. Heaven is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his, not yours. So the king will come. And it says in Matthew 25, 34, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Jesus sending people to hell. Notice that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's for those who wickedly defy God. It's for those who will not submit to his law. It's for those who do not love him, um, for, for who he's revealed himself to be. So he sent Jesus to display his great love and mercy. And finally, this is a really powerful thing you can say. Only saved people go to heaven. Are you a saved person? Are you a saved person? When it comes to heaven and hell, they are both relational. So this world, just like the next world, is created to bring glory to God. God is glorified when we love him and when we know him and when we reflect his glory because we're made in his image. The most disturbing part of hell is not the physical descriptions, that there's fire or darkness or it smells like sulfur. That's not the most disturbing part of hell. The most disturbing part of hell is the reality that you are a being capable of living forever, forever defiant of God, forever defiant of God and distanced from his glorious presence. You're capable of that. God wants to save you from that to put you in relationship to him so that you can be with him forever and ever and ever. It's a relational thing. And so when it comes to, are you going to heaven? Are you going to hell? The question is, are you a saved person? Are you related to God according to his law, that you've broken his law, you've sinned, 
and because of it, you are going to be justly condemned to go to hell. But Jesus came to die on the cross for you to save you, and if you believe in him, he will rescue you and take you to his kingdom of light. Is that how you're planning to get to heaven? Are you a saved person? That's the relationship required to dwell with God forever. You need to be saved. Are you a saved person? This is the message that we need to bring to people while we have these conversations. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves or do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I'm preparing you to share this with other people, but it would be wrong if I didn't in this moment right now ask you and everyone who's joining us online to ask you, do you know Jesus as Savior and Lord? Have you fallen on your face, admitted that you are sinful and broken beyond repair and in desperate need of Jesus Christ to save your soul from hell? Have you asked him to save you from hell. Test yourself, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. While you're talking to people, you might give them a chance to do that too. Hey, are you, are you really going to heaven? And listen, I just have to be very direct with everyone in this room. If one half to one percent of people assume they're going to hell, you might be in that group. But the Bible is clear. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Few find it. If you have never even in your life for a moment thought that you deserve to go to hell, why would you need a Savior? This could be the first time in your life you've ever realized the truth about yourself that you actually deserve to go to hell. That God will send you there, but he sent a great Savior to prevent that from happening. We have to face our depravity. And in Jude 1, 23 to 25, we get our mission. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That means you're not going down their road. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and I love this, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hey, I love that thought. You, regardless of what you've done, can stand before a holy God, unashamed and with great joy, only through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the opportunity, and now is your chance to claim it. What do we say when people say, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell? Well, what do you think happens right after you die? Do you think you're going to heaven? Why does the idea of hell bother you? What if it's the result of rejecting God's law? What if it's the result of refusing his love? Isn't it good that God's warning us? He wants to rescue us. He sent Jesus to show us his love and mercy. Save people, go to heaven. Are you a saved person? That's how you can have a great spiritual conversation with people about this topic. Well, we leave time at the end to give you a chance to ask your questions. So, uh, Charlton, I think I left my mic in the back, and I need a runner, someone who's willing. Ray, are you willing to be my runner? Ray's going to be my runner. All right, Ray's going to get the mic. Um, I'd love for us to ask questions right now. Um, 
Maybe you have an issue that you'd like a question answered on, or maybe somebody in your life does. Um, and maybe we could kind of start by focusing on the afterlife, heaven and hell. Maybe the questions about that can come first. Um, so put your hand up nice and high if you have a question that you'd like me to respond to. All right, we'll get to Jan. Uh, all right, we got Nate. Go ahead, Nate. What's your question? So this is going to be a little hard to put into words, but um, people say he's a loving God and he has mercy, you know. So how, how do you... Uh, how do you expect, uh, so like for the Holocaust, for instance, um, Jewish children, you know, they were raised and born in the Jewish faith, and then eventually the Holocaust came around, this is this way back, but um, how can a loving father expect children to believe and, you know, and then uh, seduce them to like a life of this life of suffering and them living in the Holocaust, you know, forced labor, stuff like that. Right. And so, then expect them to suffer in hell because they don't believe our faith. So it sounds to me like you're asking a few questions, like a Jewish person who went through the Holocaust, especially children who are suffering at that level, how could God say, why don't you love me? Is that what you're asking? Okay. So a few a few questions are bound up in that one. Uh, people who have a hard life, people who have suffered a lot, how can God actually say, why don't you think I'm loving? Um, that was last week's entire sermon, so make sure you listen to that. Um, why does a good God allow suffering in this life? Suffering is an opportunity for God to express his love to us, and God also suffers with us. Jesus came down. He suffers with us. He suffers because of us. Uh, you know, we drove him to the cross, and he suffers for us. So suffering is actually an avenue through which God brings salvation to the world. Uh, he can use great deep pain to alert us to the, the giant problem of evil and to our need for a savior. It's also important to realize that the Holocaust was not just something that manifested itself out of nowhere. It was a result of very wicked people doing very evil things. That's sin. That's immorality. And when you are the uh, victim of immoral things, that should cause you to cry out to a holy God for perfect justice to come. Perfect justice. God, you need to come and you need to right every wrong, judge every sin, somehow get us to a world where this never, ever happens again. Heaven is everything you're longing for. A perfect world with no sin where a loving God can wipe every tear from our eyes. He's working on that. That's what he's trying to get us uh, to. So I think that answers some of your questions, but, you know, uh, it could go deeper than that. Um, but that's, that's how I would respond to that. All right, who's got another one? What, all right, who has the mic? Jan up here? All right, we'll ask Jan. Put your hand up nice and high if you have a question. Ray's going to get to you. All right, Jan. This week I've been engaged in a texting uh, battle. Not a battle, but feels like battle. And... It, I just said, do you believe in heaven and hell? And this very polite, educated man said, yes, but perhaps differently than most. I feel we create our own heaven and hell within ourselves and thus judge or condemn ourselves. So I said, if you died right now, where would you go? Heaven, why, or based on what? I have always tried to be honest. Of course, then he goes into the good works thing. Um, Starting with myself, I have had a genuine motivation to help others and cheer their successes therapeutically, large or small. 
I believe I'm a loving, caring, and emotionally present father who champions the successes of his children and grandchildren. I would be honored to give my life for all or any of them, including my wife. And then I said, if what you believe were not true, what would, would you want to know it? And he said, no, I think emotionally, intimately, and relationally, my intent is honorable, and I can be content knowing and feeling that. So I never got to share scripture. I just said, I'd like you, would you like to know what God, he believes God and Jesus existed. Right. If, do you want to know what God the creator right. might say to these questions? But I'm not going to force that. We'd, have, we'd look at seven scriptures. Yeah. He's been very polite, but doesn't Yeah, it sounds like you've had a great, you've done a great job having a conversation with him about the afterlife. Um, I, I would say, and, and I, if I was talking to him, I wouldn't say it this bluntly, uh, but huge pride there, huge pride. Uh, putting yourself in charge of heaven is the utmost pride. Well, if I was in charge of heaven, here's who would be there. Here's what it would look like. Heaven's my fault. It, it's very selfish. Um, so anybody who thinks that they know who should go to heaven or they sh or should go to hell, okay, give me the list. Are you making the list? Are you making the list? That's just such a proud thing to do. I know exactly who should go to heaven and who should go to hell. Do you? Can I see your list? Am I on it? If you get to make a list of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, do I get to make a list too? Are we all making lists? Do we really want to be in charge of that? If you think you get to decide who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell, your neighbor does too. Okay? And so does everyone. If we're all making lists, it's just a very proud thing to think you would do a good job being put in charge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Uh, it's very proud. Only God should be in charge of that. And uh, credentialing, he's got this resume that he keeps pulling out to you. It'll take about five minutes in the afterlife to tear that whole thing to shreds. He's not a good person. There's great wickedness in his life. God will bring it to light. The Bible says some people's sins go ahead of them into judgment. You already see it. Some will come out later. Uh, trust me, you're not going to read through anybody's book in the next life and be like, oh, you are a delightful little critter. You're just like a human Twinkie. Why would God not want the soft, delicious you to end up in heaven? I don't mean to make light of it, but this is a very proud thing to do, to describe yourself as this heaven-bound angel. It's very false and deceptive. Yeah. All right, who's got another question? I have a question. Um, little children that never heard the gospel. Yeah. Say they're, you know, just born, one, two, three years old. Um, they can't accept Christ as their Savior. Yeah. Are they in hell? So the Bible doesn't directly deal with that question, but I think because of the justice and goodness of God, because of the things that are written in Scripture, anybody who has lost a child can freely release that child into the presence of, of a good, holy, awesome God. Um, I don't want to make anything more clear than the Bible makes it. The Bible does not deal with that issue. Um, here's a few things that are important to maintain, though. Children are not born innocent. They're born sinful, wicked. So they deserve hell. So there are some concepts in Scripture, like age of accountability. There are concepts in Scripture about how a Christian parent has relationship over the children um, and God's protection of children. There are a lot of other concepts that play into the idea that you should just freely trust the goodness and holiness of God uh, when it comes to that. <clears throat> so, but um, just be careful not to turn children into what they're not. They're not innocent. They're, they're born into the depravity of man. Um, and a huge problem is many people think they're born good. 
and therefore they spend their whole lives never even thinking about the reality that they can go to hell. Uh, Christian kids being raised in the church deserve to go to hell. Their parents can give them a provisional umbrella of love and protection and provision of scripture. They're surrounded by a community of redeemed people. They are not personally saved by grace until they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold those truths in tension. God is good and he's just and fair and he's expressed. Jesus said that the little children come to me and we are born sinful and we desperately need the grace of Christ from the very moment we're born. That's why we dedicate children to Christ, right? So I'm sorry I can't make that clearer than the Bible makes it, but that's as far as I think we can go with that. Another question. Hand up if you have another question. All right. Ray's getting his steps in. That's good. Ray, we got one up here. Did you have did another hand go up over here? No? You got an itch. Okay, that's good. Sharon, go ahead. I think the hardest is when you're trying to talk to someone that is strong in their faith in, I'll use uh, the Catholic religion. I go to church. I, I do believe in the cross. I do believe that Jesus died for us. But it's trying to make the personal connection. He died for everybody. Right. So why are you pushing, like, what do I need more of? Um, it's hard to break through that because they, and a lot of people in my family, um, I already do all those things. Right. So. That's good. I already do all those things. What more do you want me to do? Um, the problem there is it is by grace you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The problem there is people who think that they are working their way to God don't understand the fundamental brokenness of their relationship to God. It's irreparable. It's unsalvageable. Uh, it can't be fixed by your effort. That's why Jesus had to come. So God's love is found in Christ. If I'm doing my best, I'm simultaneously saying I don't need Jesus. See that? If I'm doing it, then when he said, it is finished, I said, no, it's not. Do you see how there's a disagreement with the cross? It is finished. No, it's not. And now I'm going to get to work. So that's proud. That's defiant. Uh, that's a rejection of the gospel. It's a broken relationship with the creator God who sent his son to save us. Yeah. Okay, who's got another question? Over here. What would you say to a person who, said, who knows that they're going to hell and they say, my friends are going to be there with me? Um, so knowing that we have fellowship with God and with other people, is that also translated in hell as I'm separate from God and I'm separate from other people? Yeah. Um, the glamorization of hell is the height of folly. Um, thinking that heaven is going to be boring is the height of pride. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can tackle this. The chemistry of happiness on earth is your brain giving you a little sugar shot for a half second. Like, that's what gets you excited. Uh, the things of earth will not satisfy you for long. If you think heaven is going to be a one-star rating, I don't think you understand where joy comes from at all. And maybe you haven't experienced the depth of emptiness and loneliness that earth can generate yet. Maybe you feel like you're pretty happy here. Um, but earth will fail to satisfy you completely in the end. 
And if you think somehow heaven's going to be a disappointment, I just don't think you understand where joy comes from. It comes from God's presence. Um, so that's a huge thing there. Where does joy come from? It's not being with all your wicked friends at an ACDC concert. Um, they are gravely mistaken. It's also a mockery to say something like that. They're mocking God. Um, so you might want to just punch through that a little bit. Um, it's, it's completely imaginary. It's just this imaginary thought of I'm going to get to go to a concert in hell. It's completely imaginary. It's ridiculous. Uh, it's very sad. If they think that's going to keep them happy forever, being with my friends at a concert, it's a, it, that's a very sad thing to think about. Like, is that really the best you have? Really? You really think, you really think that is eternal happiness? That's a very, very sad, shocking, staggering thing especially if you read to someone the description of what heaven really is going to be like. But again, it comes back to um, the relationship with God. The most lamentable thing about what they're saying in that is God is absent and they think they're going to be happy. You're really going to be okay with God building a glorious kingdom of light where he's there and there's no pain and he's there with you? He, he, the creator of everything is there and you don't want to be there, that's the most shocking, saddest thing of it all, is that you're just good with that. And to think that that is going to result in anything less than eternal conscious torment, it's just illogical. I'm going to get rid of the most loving being who, who has all the power and intelligence. I'm going to get him completely out of my life. But I'm not going to be miserable. I'm going to be having fun somehow. It, like, what? What? It's just really foolish. Uh, okay, we've got time for maybe one more question. Who's got one more question? All right, in the front here. I'll be up front too if you didn't get your question answered at the end. How would you respond to someone who believes that they've, one, lived multiple lives and they're going to be reincarnated and those kinds of beliefs? Um, yeah, I think reincarnation bonus lives, we're coming back, um, super speculative, like there's really no proof of that, um, kind of goes against what we understand about nature, you know, it's very illogical, seems irrational. Uh, I think the bottom line is it, it goes against the truth found in God's word. So man is destined to die once and then after that to face judgment. Uh, you can, you can, if you want, like if you have friends who are into the Eastern faith, you can get really far into it and show how it creates huge moral inconsistencies. Who's in charge of karma? Why do I come back as a king and you come back as a cockroach? Who's in charge of the moral judgment? The answer is morality. So here's what you're doing. You're, you're pairing, and this is always a generally a good thing to do. You're pairing destiny with one of the other three words, origin meaning morality. So when you take destiny, you pair it with morality. Well, who's in charge of karma? I don't know. Doesn't that sound greatly isn't that a thing you should know? Who decides your moral caliber when you leave this life? That's unknown. Wow. Well, that sounds shockingly unsettling to me. I think the author of goodness, God, is in charge of morality. Uh, it's really unsettling to me that you think you're just going to keep coming back and you don't even know who's in charge of the moral compass there. Wow. That's glaringly, shockingly. I think I'd need to understand that before I hold to that worldview. And you can talk about creation, you can talk about the meaning of life as well, because those things are really deficient compared to a biblical worldview. 
We're not here to just merge with an impersonal sea of energy in the end. We're here to know a holy God. That's why we were made. So, well, hey, let's pray. If your question didn't get answered, you can email me or come up front at the end of the service. Um, let's pray that God gives us a chance to have these conversations with people this week. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a terrible reality hell is. And um, people are there right now. Some people in this room will be there forever. Some online watching this will be there forever maybe sooner than they think. We thank you that your Bible says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I just want to give people a chance right now to be saved from hell, to respond to the gospel of Christ. And there's no magic words. There's no, uh, it's not a performance. It's just simply a cry of faith for help. So right now in their own hearts, people can pray with me and they can say this, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Say that in your heart if it's what you feel. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I deserve hell. If you've never said that to God before, maybe you need to say it. I deserve hell. Jesus, thank you for coming to rescue me. Thank you for dying on the cross. I believe you lived the perfect life. You died in my place and you rose again. Say that. And I trust you to bring me to heaven forever. Save me and use me to save others. To have these conversations with people this week. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen.